welcome to another episode of Stoke Meter. Man, it's always good to say that because that means we have a new guest every time. And today's guest is David Howell. Dave, how the heck are you, man? I'm doing well, Maurice. Thanks for having me. You got it. Well, Dave is one of those individuals that you probably wouldn't normally hear, hear about. Uh, he is He's a guy that protects brands. So think of any brand, your favorite brand. And they all have these really uh, aggressive third-party sellers. I know that means nothing to most of the audience right now, but if you're buying from Amazon or Walmart or eBay or any e-commerce platform, you are mostly, most likely buying from a third-party seller. And David has been at the forefront of brand protection for years. And we thought it'd be a fun show to, to be able to bring him here and shed some light on some of the things that you might be buying that you might not have had uh, any awareness of what's going on. Now, I must make a caveat. The way I know Dave is because I work with him. He brought me in on into this into his organization, and it's been a fun ride, no doubt, man. So without further ado, Dave, got to give us some of your background, man. <laughs> Thanks, Maurice. And uh and I don't think Helen Associates would be where it is today if it wasn't for having you on working with me as a partner. So, so I appreciate that. But, uh, you know, all shameless plugs aside. So uh, a little bit of my background right out of high school, I went in the military. And as you could look around my office here, if you're looking at it on a video, you can see a lot of my uh, military service there. So that gave me the foundation. Um, really, uh, it sounds a little backwards, but that military gave me the foundation for everything that I do today. Now, it was my college education and some of the other things I did after the military that really allowed me to dive into it. But it was that, that, that discipline and that leadership skills that I learned when I was in the military. So I was in the military for just under nine years, did three, three years, private military contracting, deployed four times, uh, you know, went to, uh, uh, you know, some of the military training academies, went to the war college, went to uh, uh, ANOC, you know, advanced on, uh, non-commissioned officer course and a few others. And uh, that gave me the, the, the leadership uh, to, to basically have the discipline to do the things that we do today. And what is that, right? So everybody's like, oh, your military is great, but what is it? So while I was in college, when I got out, um, uh, I started with a company called Mark Monitor. And I just started as employee number 10, didn't even know what it was, love entrepreneurialism, loved that starting at the ground level. And uh, uh, they evangelized what true brand protection is. And, and when you think, if you, if you are attributing to like military, it's protecting what's yours, right? Or protecting those who need more um, protection that can't do it themselves. So ironically, uh, this company just started, you know, evangelizing what this is. And then I just, I, I gravitated to it. I, I loved every aspect of it. And now we spearhead 20 years later. And, uh, you know, after working for a couple startups, working for one of the largest law firms in the country uh, here, you know, about five and a half years ago, I believe, Maurice, we started this, I brought you on about four years ago. And uh, we've been just, you know, we work for just about every brand you could think of, right? From as big as, you know, Adidas, you know, Nike, things like that, all the way to uh, a pretzel company out of Pennsylvania. <laughs> I mean, there nobody's not touched with that. And I have a feeling you'll ask me a lot of questions on exactly what we do, but I'll let you dive into that. Well, I'm going to let that go over Gary because I know too much. So <laughs> Gary, you bought stuff on Amazon or 
or any other e-commerce platform, have you ever had that that, that sneaky feeling like, I, I don't know, too good to be true or what have you. I mean, give me your e-commerce, e-commerce buying experience. Well, I'll tell you, for me, this is kind of, this just really interests me just because of my experience. So back in, I think the early 2000s, um, I had a company where we did low voltage contracting. So we were doing high-end audio, video, security, surveillance, and that type of stuff up in the Scottsdale area in Arizona. And at that time, I, I, I don't even know how I got into it, but we were able to establish a relationship with a warehouse or a company in China to manufacture cameras. And it was interesting because back then, I was able to procure high-end, and they were very good cameras, that I could put them in and install them in these really high-end installations and warranty them, but I could get them cheaper than anyone else could get them wholesale. And so anyway, I, I, got, a, I got just a little dip into the, the deep end of what it means to, you know, to, to, out, to source a brand or white box or anything like that. And then you fast forward. So, so back then, um, you know, e-commerce didn't exist. It just wasn't a thing. And now, you know, you talked about brand protection. People do wonder that. Like when you go to eBay and you go to Amazon so many times, you're like, am I getting an authentic product? Is this thing even real? Yeah. You know, and even just, it was such an eye opener for me when I actually went to China and you know, you just see all this fake product everywhere. It's everywhere. And that way I said, that was a long time ago. I can only imagine what it's like now. Gary, so, did you go to Shenzhen? Did you go to Silk Alley? <laughs> yep. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, it blew me away. I mean, yeah. I was just, so, so I can, I imagine your guys' work is cut out for you now. And so I, I like the analogy that you made of, okay, in the military, you were protecting people that couldn't protect themselves. And now you're basically protecting product that can't protect themselves. So yeah, I'm, I'm super interested. Tell me more, tell me more of what that entails. What does that look like in 2022? <laughs> yeah, so uh, uh, ironically, what the, the term brand protection is probably very generic or general. Um, we still use it today. Um, but it's kind of a very large umbrella. So the one thing that I've learned in, in this industry, just like in the military, you're going to be very agile and, and you have to be able to adapt and overcome, right? There's a good plug right there for my ranger training. Um, so <laughs> um, when I first started in the brand protection world, it, there was two laws that the Clinton administration put on the books, right? And that was the, the Anti-Cyber Squatting Act, which attributes to domain names. And then there was a Digital Money Copyright Act, which basically is a copyright or a logo. Um, those were were two laws that are put on the books to just protect a company um, at its the very basics. Now, why they were doing that on the domain name and just trademarks, um, a practical example is at one time, way, way, way back, um, you, Google used to assign um, the, the results less organic and more, if the word Coke is used 8,000 times in a domain name, that must be Coke, it'll go to the top, right? Well, Pepsi learned this. <laughs> so Pepsi took the white background 
with white lettering and typed in Coke a kajillion times, okay? So that's a trademark violation um, or, or a copyright under that, which would be a trademark violation. Um, how do you find those things, right? So you have to you have to create some level of, of crawling technology. Um, and the Cyber Squatting Act would be if, you know, uh, well, you typed in Pepsi is better than Coke.com, right? You really can't do that. You know, Pepsi, an independent person can do that if they're not monetizing it. But the minute you're monetizing it and you're diverting traffic, that's, that's a, an infringement. So what is that? That's diversion, right, Gary? Diverting where that consumer intended to go that's going somewhere else. Fast forward to today. You can't really make a lot of money on domain names. You can't really make a lot of money on just typing Coke or Pepsi or Unique Pretzel a thousand times. But what you can do is you can divert consumers away from where they want to purchase or they should be purchasing product that the manufacturer wants, like a hydro flask, right? Um, and diverting them to a marketplace. There's two types of marketplaces. There's a closed marketplace, which would be going to cabelas.com or rei.com. There's an open marketplace. That's the eBay. That's the Amazon. Most of the most of your audience probably is not aware that when you go on Amazon, you may go to amazon.com. You get a search result. You pay Amazon. Amazon communicates with you. Amazon confirms the shipping. And when it arrives at your door, you get a pretty Amazon box. 99% of the time, you're getting it from a third-party seller that's selling that product on that platform. Most consumers don't, don't know that. Ironically, I just testified it in, in a federal court case that's the largest one in U.S. history on counterfeit. And as I was testifying to some of this, uh, I believe it was the judge that just kind of said, he goes, okay, who went home last night and looked at the last things that they brought and <laughs> thought it was Amazon or not, right? Um, and the jury, same thing, which is what the goal is, make the jury think, right? Um, so a lot of times it's just kind of a, a very dynamic world out there and manufacturers, they're not in the business of protecting their brand or they're not in the business of some of these, they're in the business to, manuf to innovate, manufacture, and then convert or sell. So they have to have some, you know, some uh, uh, agency like ours out there or bring it in house. And about six years ago, I put a lot of thought into this and I, I kind of coined this, everybody uses it now. I, I'm going to take full credit for this because I was the first one to do it, but you have to have <laughs> three core um, uh, areas in any brand protection program. And this really goes to any type of brand protection. You, you have to have a very active monitoring service. Doesn't matter if it's technology, if you're going out there on your own, something to capture it. Then you have to put a level of research and investigation behind the data that you pulled. And then you have to enforce on it to solve that problem. If you take any one of those three out, any one of them, you will fail in your brand protection program. Any one of them. And it doesn't matter which one. You can't just uh, uh, monitor and jump right to the enforcement because there's so much anonymity out there in the internet. You don't know who you're enforcing on or you're going to play the proverbial whack-a-mole. Same thing as if you basically, if you just... Uh, you know, if you just research and then investigate, but don't enforce on it, I mean, you're not solving the problem. So it's really important that you kind of go out there and do those types of things. So um, I, I could, I could, as Maurice does, I could probably talk about why well, we're actually launching a, a, another podcast educational called the marketplace dilemma. So I can talk for about 800 hours. <laughs> well, you well, got to, one of the things that you educated me on is, oh yeah, look, man, it's coming from a legit place. I didn't know anything about co-mingling. I just wondered if you can tell 
tell the audience what the heck commingling is and realizing that do you are you really getting it legit but go ahead yeah this is this is the the commingling I- issue which is kind of nobody really knows what that term is well we all know all your audience knows these massively huge amazon warehouses all around the country we hear about them picketing we hear about how great it works there how bad it works there uh you know a, a tornado comes down tears one down so we know they're out there but what are these what are these huge fulfillment centers? And that's what it is. It's a fulfillment center. So if I, as just David Howell, and I have a store called 123 ABC, and I acquire uh, 500 hydro flasks, and I'm like, okay, what do I do with these? I got these at a flea market. They fell off the back of a truck, right? I'm I'm half Sicilian. You know, I acquired them, <laughs> right? So um, however you want to do that, right? And uh, the best way to do it is you basically send it into Amazon, into their warehouse, you pay a premium for that in your commissions, but they actually go into that warehouse. Amazon knows their distribution better than any company in the world. They will take it from, if I send it, it'll go to Nampa, Idaho, which is our town over here. It'll go to that distribu- distribution center, and then they'll send it out to every other distribution center they have, depending on the volume of sales. When it does go into that, it goes into a very big bin. So every hydroflask that looks exactly like this, they all go in there. So it's kind of a bundling. They know I, I sent 50 in there and they're assuming I don't care what 50 I have as long as I get the conversions. So then it gets commingled all, all around um, the country. And as of recently, um, Amazon started their own third-party seller store and they actually are now selling to themselves and moving a distribution globally, which is undercutting virtually every third-party seller and distributor. And that way, why Maurice kind of brings this up on the commingling. A lot of individuals who we enforce on, third-party sellers, will literally swear. They'll swear on everything they possibly can to say that's not counterfeit. I know for a fact, and there's nothing you can tell me that wouldn't say that my product's not counterfeit. And then I ask the question, well, do you fulfill by Amazon? And do you commingle your product? They're like, well, what do you mean? <laughs> the minute they send it to Amazon, you can't validate that that's your product anymore. Yeah. Unless you ask to segregate that product into your own category. Nobody's doing that because you pay upwards of 32 to 34% of your sale to that when you start doing those things. So most of these third-party sellers don't aren't even aware. So when I buy a counterfeit and shut them down for counterfeit, and they want to sue me and go to, to you know, go every fight they can. In the end, if they're combing on the product, they have no grounds to stand on. So, well, and I, I think you that's kind of interesting you say that. It, this is such an education for me. I love this. <laughs> but it also, what, what I'm kind of thinking as you're telling me this is there's really no incentive for Amazon to, to do the three big pillars of what you're trying to accomplish as a brand protection company. Mm-hmm. All they really care is obtain product and sell product. Yeah. You know, so I think so many times, especially in this day and age, we look at some a company like Amazon and we think that they're doing everything perfect. They're protecting everyone. They've got all their bases covered. But realistically, they're not really doing anything is what it sounds like. Is that true? That, that's absolutely true. I actually wrote a paper a couple of years back called Amazon Brand Protection Solutions. Is it just for PR? And that's what it is. So I testified to this too, and, and all this will come out, you know, in the transcripts, but um, as everybody would be aware, if there's a big federal lawsuit, Amazon's not going to show up, right? Because he can't get their secret sauce out there. So why was Amazon as an independent, repres- not representing Amazon, but speaking basically as an expert on behalf of it. And 
I got drilled pretty hard because I said that I go Amazon brand protection solutions they have in house to try to cure this. Is it just for PR? And it is because every two years or so they're going to do a big press release that Amazon's doing all this to protect it. And when I go on record and I put my reputation on, on online and I say that, and then I get drilled, I just pose the question right back. I go, well, if brand registry 1.0 worked, why did we need 2.0? If 2.0 worked, why did we need transparency? If transparency worked, why did we have gating? But then you pull gating back and then you did, you did, uh, you know, goal zero. You always are doing something. And if, if the first one worked, why do we have another one? And the problem is, is it worked too good, Gary. If their goal is to have as many sellers competing for that buy box or that conversion to drive the price down and all they care about is customer service. And that's part of the problem when it, it, they even move the goalposts on what categories are. They used to be new. New is 100% as stated. When in original packaging, unopened, with full warranty. They had this, like it was a black and white, that's it. All of a sudden, every six months or a year, well, it can be without a box. Well, it can be <laughs> repackaged. Oh, it can be without the solophane. And the reason why is they were shrinking up their own new category and they weren't having that many people sell on it. So they opened it right back up and they moved the goalposts back and forth, how it fits them. And I believe, and I stated this too, that, that Amazon creates unfair competition between third-party sellers, both unauthorized and authorized third-party sellers. And if anybody is colluding or creating price fixing, it's Amazon. And it's only a matter of time before somebody, probably going to have to be a government, but somebody's <laughs> going to have to slap Amazon down. <laughs> well, what was so, that? So tell me a little bit more about Amazon competing with Amazon or selling against Amazon. So I have to tell you a quick story about, I don't, I don't know if this, this parallels with what you're talking about, but so back in the day, um, there was a company that was creating point-to-point -point microwave solutions for cell phone towers. Okay. And there was a company, or, or excuse me, there was a country in South America that they had, their, their biggest export was copper. The interesting thing about that was, is they had no natural reserves of copper in the country. <laughs> what it was, was people tearing down the copper lines off the telephone network and selling it. And that was literally their largest export at the time. And so this point-to-point -point high speed microwave system was going to be a big deal for for you know not having copper, being able to cover large distances, high bandwidth, and that type of thing. So this we got set up with this company and I was literally, we were going to move down there and form a company and start doing these installations. And we got pretty far down that path. And then all of a sudden they're like, well, wait a minute. Well, the company said, we're now competing down there. <laughs> and it wiped us out. <laughs> all of a sudden we went from hundred miles an hour to like hitting a, hitting a brick wall. And so I tell me a little bit more about that. Cause I could see this really being a devastating impact to the, the people that are even doing it well, right. And, and before he goes on that, I want to add something onto that, that little fire pile. You got to talk to them about the the fa the failure to comply to map pricing, and we'll get to that. You remember that because it uh, it, it adheres to an antitrust situation. You remember that note, Dave, that we got a little bit. So I think all of that ties in together. So yeah, absolutely. So when you talk about Amazon competing, so there there's so many moving parts. I'm going to try to keep this as as layman terms as possible. So. 
Amazon have the warehouse. Well, when we, we like Maurice and I, or any of our other associates, we enforce on a third-party seller, uh, one of three things happen, right? They're going to fall in compliance, okay? They're going to ignore us and flip up the middle finger. That happens. <laughs> or they're going to sit here and go, I am out. And they sell their stuff to Amazon because Amazon uh, will buy it because yep. it's already in the warehouse. Remember, these third-party sellers will then have to pay to ship all that product back and pay to have it inventoried there. So a lot of times it's like, oh, well, I'll just write off as a loss and Amazon will buy it. But what is that? Do you think Amazon buys it and sells it to other third-party sellers? <laughs> no way. No, 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 That's no. crazy. Exactly. That'd be crazy talk, right? <laughs> so, so what Amazon does is they actually put it in, 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 in their Amazon store, right? And, and they start competing. Now, whenever I, we work with any, any manufacturer, one of the first questions, I, if not the first question after hello, <laughs> right, is do you sell 1P or 3P on Amazon? Okay. Um, what that really means is if you're selling 1P, you basically are selling direct to Amazon and, and you're having Amazon be your seller. The minute you do that, you give up all your intellectual property rights in perpetuity, which means forever across Amazon and all Amazon platforms. So your ability to enforce is gone. Doesn't mean we can't help you, but I mean, I've had a few brands that actually cut that relationship off and tweaked their logo. Just like one of the largest coat and clothing manufacturers in the world tweaked their logo a little bit and then went to, to fight and Amazon took all the product down and Amazon has their own staging facility and took all new pictures. It's, it's ridiculous. I could go in down the rabbit hole with this. Amazon's pretty much dialed in. But so, that, so wait a minute, real, real quick. So again, I'm, I'm layman here. So yeah. I, I, I'm, uh, I'm bottom of the barrel on the knowledge base here. So it sounds to me like this is in Amazon's best interest to shut down people that are selling counterfeit stuff so that they can basically commandeer it and sell it themselves. You would think so, but it's not. It's a, it's a great um, uh, cause and effect, but Amazon doesn't want to be out there acquiring products. So Amazon would rather have 2 million third-party sellers out there, out there scrambling to acquire product through, through uh, you know, traditional retail arbitrage, right? Buy low, sell high at the big box retailers or rogue distribution or things of that nature. Amazon's not going to be able to go and get that much uh, inventory onesie twosies, right? Remember, it's, it's, Amazon's problem isn't the authorized third-party sellers that can get product right through distribution or right direct from manufacturer. It's the unauthorized that acquires that. If you really think about it and you say, okay, there's, I don't even know what the exact number is. There's 18 million third-party sellers today. If all 18 million just acquired 100 random products, how many products is that that's on Amazon? Amazon could never go acquire those products themselves. They would have to hire 18 million people to go do that and then be on this, the grounds looking at the end caps at Target for discounts at, at Walmart, looking, you know, rogue distribution, things of that nature. So it, it, it it's just interesting to think about it. Amazon is their number one competitor, but it's kind of just because it happens. And they're like, why? I'm not going to leave money on the table. We already have it. And considering that Amazon Global Store is a third-party seller and we control the buy box, huh, <laughs> we might be able to make this work. <laughs> Interesting. This that is, is what I love about having Gary on here because there's a lot of things over the years that I have accumulated in working with you that I've taken for granted. And so seeing Gary's like, whoa, why did I? <laughs> it's, it's pretty fascinating. Pretty fascinating. <laughs> No, no. I, yeah, I, I think it's intriguing just to see, you know, so at some point, a product is going to get in the hands of a consumer, it sounds like, 
whether regardless of where that product came from, it's not going to be taken off the market because of potentially nefarious reasons is what it sounds like. Is that true? That that's, that's true. Because the consumer demands it, right? So when you look at Walmart, what Sam Walton did back in the day was guaranteeing those contracts that Walmart can sell it lower than anybody else. And if if anybody ever sold it lower than that, Walmart had the right to go back to the beginning of that contract and back bill that, right? People don't know this, but that's what put like kosher pickles out of business or put them on pause for quite a few years. So what 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 Bezos did was take a look at that and go, what's a way to replicate this for an online business? However, we're not going to acquire product and we're not going to have contracts directly with the manufacturers. So open it up for an open marketplace and then create the algorithm. The different, the, the key difference by looking at eBay when you just go search for a product and looking at Amazon when you search for a product, that if I'm looking for these pair of glasses on eBay, it's going to list all of them. And I get to then pick and choose, go, this picture looks better. This is maybe a little cheaper. Amazon said, let's create what's called the buy box. The buy box is the conversion that lands there. So when someone searches for these glasses and they're on their phone or laptop or iPad, whatever, and that comes up and they're like, perfect, buy. That's the buy box conversion. That's not Amazon. That's a third-party seller 99% of the time. And they're you're scrambling because nobody knows the true algorithm to obtain that buy box for that conversion. It could be sales. It could be your customer service or your store rating. It could be your shipping. It is Amazon Prime and new. So, and, and new being how we told, you know, open up that funnel a little bit, right? Because, you know, if you start restricting that, new only gets the, the buy box unless there's no new product at all. So what he did, he was very smart to decide, I'm not going to tell anybody how we obtain the buy box. We're going to have it rotating and we're going to have everybody fight for it. And by default, you get the lower price, but it's not really price. It's a lot of the customer service too. If anybody bought something on Amazon and wasn't happy with it, I don't even need to put this back in a box. I could run to Kohl's and go, thank you. And I get my money back because Amazon basically knew if we have an online marketplace, nobody's buying nothing if we don't stand behind it and convert it quick. And they put little things in place. Like I buy a pair of shorts. I don't like it or doesn't fit. I don't even need to send it back. I'll, I'll say I'm going to send it back. They'll send me another one. Let me try that on. And, and, and I mean, what that money it takes to do that. But Amazon's, they're, they're making it one way or the other. So, yeah. Yeah, I was wondering about that. It's, it, so in the last, I don't know, last two months, I bought two products. So one was a master cylinder for a truck. And the other one was a battery for a motorcycle. And one of them got lost. And then the, the I mean, one product got lost. And then it showed up on my doorstep. But they'd already sent the replacement. Called them up. Hey, I need to send this back. They're like, keep it. Don't yep, need yep. it. <laughs> battery for a motorcycle the, the terminal had been bent a little bit in shipping i i tell them i'm like hey i need to drop this They're like keep it we'll send you another one i mean it's you can tell that people are just bending over backwards to just yeah you know that to, to stay on the upside and to yeah. basically play that bite box at some point if there's any if there's any gremlin that that breaks that um, Amazon will go away, right? So you can't have, if you don't have the consumer confidence, Amazon will, will not be there. So at one time when Maurice, actually when Maurice actually joined me, um, you know, in, in the company, Amazon was sitting on probably 20% plus counterfeit across all of their stuff. 
And wow. I I'm using counterfeit probably a little more general than 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 the legal people would like to say, because you got clones out there, you got one-offs, you got that. But for the 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 original product, there was 20% of all products on there that was just nefarious, I guess you would say, or illicit goods. And Amazon works to try to clean some of that up to validate some of that product because it's a consumer confidence issue. If everybody knew and it got out that 20% of all products on there were counterfeit, you would start seeing the conversions go down. People would then start going back to cabelas.com or rei.com or to the manufacturer, go to hydroflask.com or fallraven.com. Amazon does not want that. So Amazon will fix anything, anytime they can do that, except remove third-party sellers. <laughs> so so yeah. they'll fix all the product, but they're not going <laughs> to shut down that third-party seller because without that competition, without that so many sellers fighting for that buy box, the consumer doesn't win. And if the consumer doesn't win, Amazon doesn't win. Yeah. I have a question for you. This goes back to my 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 uh, surveillance camera days. Um, I thought it was intriguing. So I, to be honest with you, at that time, I didn't even really know what product I was getting until later. Um, I, I Just out of a whim, one time I, I grabbed one of our white boxed cameras, you know, that had our logo on it, everything. It was our name brand. And I had a, had a, a very high-end brand name camera on our shelves that was left over from before I started getting them from China. And on a whim, I pulled it out. I'm like, man, this thing looks familiar. And I pulled it out and they were identical. I mean, absolutely <laughs> identical. So, you know, it gets really confusing at some point between what, you know, they were both authentic. They were both real. One had my, my name and logo on it. And the other one was this brand name one. I assume they were probably made in the same factory or stolen or, you know, whatever. There's got to be a lot of gray area that you guys deal in with as well. That's the I gotta tell term. The, I, gray market. Story. Right? Yeah. I got to tell yeah. the one story that we, we, there's a client that we have that they, uh, they make boots, high-end rain boots for, for kids. And uh, it was it was interesting. Go, we we don't get it. There's this there's this boot. It looks exactly like ours. The material's exactly like ours. The color's different. Their brand they have the different brand on. We don't know. So did some investigation, and they did the investigations, and then we found a port uh, that they were coming into, and we signed found out who signed off. It was an, a, an American lawyer, and then did a little bit digging, and then a name came up. And it was, it was, a it was, a, a so we took the name and then they, they, the, the client did a, a look at the name and their CFO came back to us and go, you've got to be kidding. What happened was the, the name was a wife of their manufacturer, the wife of the, the CEO of their manufacturer. So in, what happened is when they did their run for this brand, they were putting in their different colors and their different tag and making the exact same boot on the exact same presses and releasing them for their own for a, 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 a fraction of the price. It was insane. And this goes on and on and on and on and on. So it's just, how, how, do, you, how do you protect in that wild, wild west, right? <laughs> well, and that goes down to the manufacturing too. So you, you, your term was exact, Gary. It's gray, right? So I did work for Callaway Golf Clubs back in the day. And uh, some of the products that, there was actually a great, I think it was Brian Gumble on HBO. He did a test with them, right? And the counterfeit ones hit better <laughs> and further than the real ones. 
but come to, come to say those counterfeit were technically gray market because it was a third shift coming in the factory. So it was the same materials, same molds and everything. And, and you look at that and if you don't have your hands on very tight manufacturing and some, some do, um, we have a backpack company that we work with now, their manufacturing is terrible only because they go from like five or six different factories. So sometimes I get a backpack and I look at this, I'm trying to see if it's counterfeit or not. We don't know because the materials and some of the sewing difference between factories and it's just, it's difficult. However, the flip side of that, Spyderco, great knife company, used to only make in Japan. Well, they went and they moved a lot of their line over to China. They held such stringent to that factory that when I hold the Chinese Spyderco blade, it is phenomenal. Um, the tolerances and everything's there because they control it. And they go in, they go in, they register all the trademarks. They work very close with the Chinese government to basically say, we'll do this, but we need this, 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 and this. And they'll actively protect it and they'll manage that factory. If you don't do it, it was New Balance shoes a long time ago. Same thing. So they had to, they actually manufactured their labels in a different country, shipped only the amount of labels to the amount of shoes that were being manufactured that way if there were the gray market shoes which were technically new balance shoes just unauthorized manufacturing if it didn't have the label then you couldn't use and they would use a little a cool little laser thing right here right to see that label and to see if it's real uh -huh. but it's amazing the different things that you have to do and then you get to train custom customs enforcement to 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 know that once you find this container coming in that you're working with them to then seize that container to investigate and that's you know no no plug intended but that's the marketplace dilemma right i have to be there yeah what am i going to do and you got to look at the manufacturing all the way through the customer because the customer has to be educated just like what we're talking about here know where you're buying it what you're buying it and from who and if you don't know those three things uh, you know you're kind of you're really only saving three or four bucks, but you might not be happy. <laughs> and I think that's an important distinction to make is just because it says made in China, you can get very quality high end yeah. products that are absolutely yeah. authentic. Yeah. You know, um, that's interesting. So <laughs> I imagine if I were someone that, that wanted to create a product and well, and another side note. So back in the day, I always say back in the day, cause it was a long time ago. We were looking at creating a portable action camera, which, gee, guess who kind of, you know, GoPro kind of captured that market. But back then, our limiting factor was storage, was just, mm -hmm. you know, yep. storage at the time was incredibly expensive and it kind of killed us a little bit. So we actually kind of dipped our toes into the uh, product development side of stuff. And I'll tell you, from what you're telling me, I can only imagine if I were someone that created even just a new product, it has to be absolutely terrifying because you're already going up against just trying to figure out how to get something, you know, from a, a concept to actually a physical product. Mm -hmm. Most people aren't geared towards brand protection mm -hmm. and probably don't even understand everything that that entails. Yep. Is your market, I imagine it's probably flourishing right now. It's probably growing incredibly quick or are people just not aware. 
well, if I can get Maurice off his butt, I think I probably would be growing, but uh, no, 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 no. All joking aside, you're, you're right. You know, um, I think what it comes down to, it, it, most companies understand what brand protection is, but a lot of times the marketing team will be like, yeah, we're protecting our brand. We're doing this commercial or we're evangelizing it. And it comes down to if, if you, I, I, I'll never forget this one. It was with a bicycle uh, uh, parts company. Uh, when I first found out they had a counterfeit wheel, the call was funny because it was all the founders and they're like, well, SOB, we made it. We're counterfeited. We made it. Because <laughs> that's almost <laughs> like the thing. Now, at that point, they're like, now we got to solve it. But once you're counterfeited, you kind of know you made it, right? So it's kind of a catch yeah. too, and that's part of that dilemma. But um, it, 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 in all reality, we can put such a foundation in place to make sure you're protected when you start manufacturing. Because I would say shy away from China for manufacturing. Um, there's other countries. Korea's great. Um, Taiwan's good. Uh, Taiwan's a little sketchy right now with everything going on, but Sri Lanka, Vietnam, these are countries that are trying to get the business from China and is willing to uh, to work with you to ensure that that's not um, taken, taken care of. And, um, you know, all, poli- all politics aside, the last administration uh, here in the United States was pushing very hard for the intellectual property rights um, for for China to start upholding that because from a business perspective we have to do that because if there's inexpensive or cheap manufacturing over there but quality that's good for everybody it's good for for China and it's good for our manufacturers that want to want to you know go to market because everybody wants the lowest cost right. Um, the only way we can work with that is if somebody's willing to uphold our intellectual property rights. China's not at all, and they don't care. Um, so maybe think of, of changing that and moving over. Now, I do know China well. If you do certain things, China will uphold some intellectual property rights, but you got to go and register your trademark in China, do your manufacturing solely in China. You got you to work with them, and then they'll be, okay, well, you're willing to work with us. We're willing to work with you, but I always say it's a matter of time matter of time before somebody's going to rip you off over there. Um, doesn't mean it wouldn't happen in Vietnam or Sri Lanka or anything, but the quality and the longevity of being able to manufacture there for years um, without having to worry about the factory next door <laughs> getting a pair of blueprints, right? I mean, that's what it comes down to. And clones are just as bad as counterfeit. So when you said you found the counter, the, the, the camera, that's a clone. Um, that is eroding at, at the marketplace. Um, that is taking intellectual property, taking the innovative nature, and you just you 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 can't you can't have that, and you got to nip that in the bud somewhere. Mm-hmm. And and it's and it's so confusing. Like I said, so like when when we were doing that, you know, we had all the best intent in the world. You know, I imagine there's a lot of of what you guys do where the people on the other end of the phone are like, wait, we had no ill intent whatsoever, like. Yeah. Uh, does that happen quite a bit where people didn't even realize that they were going sideways or, is, or are these people pretty much aware? Like what kind of balance do you see in that regard? Maurice, I'll let you answer that one. Yeah, you so can, you it, can it's, shift it, your, your, your hat over here a little bit. <laughs> it's, it's interesting. I'm glad that Gary's asking all the questions from, uh, from, from this education, educative point of view, because again, I it took it, took it for granted, but well, one of the things is, when I first partnered up with Dave, Dave was just, he, he is still recognized as one of the best in the world at this stuff. And 
I remember one time I was I was enforcing on somebody and going, hey man, what's going on? I, I was ready to play the hammer on the nail type of thing. <laughs> and they go, but wait a sec, this this happened and this happened. Now, Gary, you know as well as I do, I might have a tough exterior, but I have a bleeding heart like unbelievable. <laughs> it's, it's just ridiculous. I go, I won't tell anyone. Wait, wait, are me. you saying that this happened? And then so I go to Dave, I go, dude, these guys are getting snowballed over here. So I'm all of a sudden. I am the advocate for the third party. We're protecting the brand. But I go, wait a second. No, the third party here is not in the wrong. And then pretty soon you start to realize very quickly that these are, a majority of these third party sellers are really good people just trying to make a living. And because of something that they didn't know, they didn't know that they couldn't go to a closeout thing and then sell it as new. And, and they didn't realize that it was going to bring in such a, a mass amount of, uh, of legal terms, if, if you will. And so in, in doing that, matter of fact, what really put it to the forefront is we mockingly were recommended to a brand by someone that I had enforced on. <laughs> yeah. And so I called the dude and I said, hey, what's going on, man? I mean, yeah, I enforced it. I know that it probably wasn't comfortable. And then he goes, I got to admit, man, I did it as a mocking thing. And I go, well, tell me a little bit more about this stuff. And what he was saying was, you know, we, we try to do, we follow all the rules. We do everything yeah. that we can and we still get dinged. And I go, well, tell me how you're getting dinged. And well, because there'll be a cutoff, the brand will do something. And then all of a sudden we're not, authorized anymore yeah. or there's something else that they'll that is attributed to them that really wasn't true all of a sudden all these other pieces come into the table and so instead of being the hammer on the nail all the time sometimes it's good to draw back to see maybe you need a screwdriver or maybe you need something else yeah. to do that and so it's been a it's been a very uh educative process uh by speaking not only with the brands, but with these 30 party sellers, because these 30 party sellers all of a sudden bring to light so many things that will indeed protect the brand. And mm -hmm. everyone has the best intents at hand. They, they're not blind to the fact that, that uh, some e-commerce platforms are very willing to do things to sell the product. They want to make sure that they're adhering to it too. And so in this case, I'm I guess I am the advocate for third parties. <laughs> well, Gary, it was, it's interesting too, because when I first started this business, so I left the law firm, right? And, uh, uh, you know, no money coming in, no nothing, burning savings, building a website, doing all this stuff. And third party sellers were literally about the antichrist in my world. Okay? <laughs> Maurice comes on board, I'm educating him. And all of a sudden he starts building this rapport because, you know, we just pick up the phone and call. And I think that, Part of the reason, and I'm, I'm going to hang you out to dry here, Maurice. Part of the reason is, is I was stuffing envelopes till three in the morning sometimes on enforcement letters. I think Maurice was like, I'm too lazy for that. I'm not doing that. I'm just going to call him. It's quicker. And then <laughs> he's calling. Right. And as he's calling, they're like, um, okay, yeah, I am XYZ reseller. I didn't know. I got, here's my purchase order from Dave Howell saying I could do this. It didn't take long to understand that distributors were part of the problem. They did not have a do not distribute list. They did not have a tight channel that would be authorized channel versus not. And 
the, you know, I always say ignorance is not a defense, but you can't be ignorant if you don't know, like literally don't know, because no one's told you once I told you. So a lot of one of the reasons why, as Marie said, I have the reputation in the industry that I do, I will always tell you what you need to hear and have to hear, not what you want to hear. And there's times where they want these third-party sellers shut down, and I will go to them and I said, I'm not doing it. They acquire product legitimately. You need either buy it back or let them sell through. But if you shut them down, they're gonna, they, they have every right to sue you for selling them a bill of goods and then not letting them sell it. So fulfilling a PO and then cutting their legs out from under him. And I, I, I'm, I'm very much going, and then I will not work with you past that because it's, it's not worth it. You're not doing things in good faith. And Maurice hears me say that a lot. There's good faith and bad faith. I measure everything we do to those two. If you're coming at this from a good faith perspective, I, I will go to bat for you. I will work with you. I will try to mediate this between the manufacturer and you. If you're bad faith and flip me, like I said earlier, the middle finger, oh, I will send Maurice down. I will. <laughs> Maurice will love that. And and we'll we'll go to bat. We'll go to bat. And and they're not going to win. I mean, I've had, I am not an attorney. And I have had attorneys come at me from every corner of this country and they just go away. They never, uh, I, I, uh, and I, I'm not trying to do the Pepsi challenge here because I don't want lawyers now going, oh, I can get you, Dave. They, they, they come at me with all this for sale doctrine, downstream commerce, all this different stuff. And then I'm just very calmly and I come back and I methodically send it back. And next thing you know, they just go away. And I'm like, what happened with them? Like, you know, and, uh, and, and, and that's what it is. It's like, you know, just have a good strategy. That's why I have all this stuff around me. Strategy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you guys work really well together, kind of a yin and yang kind of thing going on there. But it, it, so going back to kind of my history, I think it's interesting, interesting how we kind of had all, or the industry has had it all kind of figured out. So like you go to the late 90s when I was, you know, selling product, it was pretty clear cut and dry. If I wanted to sell Toshiba, there was one place in, in Phoenix I could pick up that that TV that was an authorized thing. They would come to my business. They would check me out. They would look at my financials. They would see how much product I was selling. They would say, if you sell this, you can't sell that. It was so clear. And so it's kind of weird how these disruptive technology, like e-commerce, mm -hmm. you know, I can't even imagine doing my company in this environment where oh, yeah. anybody can go to Amazon and get a really good deal on whatever product it is you know, whether it's legit or not. Mm -hmm. And so when you say it's kind of the wild, wild west, we kind of came from like everything kind of figured out and then you had e-commerce e kind of hit the market and it turned it into the wild, wild west. Yeah. And the and just listening to you guys, you, you two talk, what's intriguing to me is there's so many angles to all this. And you said earlier, you made the phrase whack-a-mole. Yeah. And that sounds so <laughs> relevant because- when you say brand protection, it's just not one or two elements in play. It's yeah. not just a few things that you can just kind of grab onto and take care of. There's so many nuances. How do you guys know where to even start? <laughs> Making a, a lot question. of mistakes sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, to put it in, in, in really layman's terms, when people try to understand, like, I don't understand what the problem is. It's a marketplace. So when you go back, like what you said, you know, back in Arizona you want to buy a TV, you know, there's a reason you look at Honda dealerships. Let's take the analogy of a Honda dealership. There's a Honda dealership usually in, in, in every town. They're, if it's a large enough town, they're probably 15, 20 miles apart, right? 
what would happen if there was eight or nine Honda dealerships on the same block? Mm-hmm. That's what yeah. the internet has done. It's 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 basically taken where you have a Walmart in this area and there's really nothing else around that Walmart for four or three miles, whatever it is. So Walmart has that captive audience, okay? The internet has removed that. The internet has said, well, I can go to one place and I have everything. And, and that's where minimum advertised pricing comes into play. That's when authorized distribution, authorized sale, sales. Um, and it even gets really bad, Gary, when I was speaking at Outdoor Retailer a few years back before the pandemic, and uh, I had the privilege to sit with REI, which I think REI is one of the better of, uh, of retailers out there. They adhere to all distribution. They're a very, very good player in the industry. And um, I was working with a, a, a coat manufacturer that was, REI wants them to increase their PO. And the coat manufacturer goes, no, because of this. And the reason why it was this is on the Amazon app, they can go in there, try on this coat and go, this is a beautiful coat, fits me perfect, XL, scan it with the Amazon app and then get it two days or next day for 30% cheaper. So REI is sitting there going, it's all about retail space inside of those stores. We're not going to increase our PO to have all these coats there for people to come in and try them on mm-hmm. and then buy them on Amazon. And I made I made one lawyer about crawling his skin too. I go, well, I mean, what REI could do is just put a cell phone blocker in all their stores. And two people go, <laughs> that's a great idea. And the lawyers are like, no, that is a liability <laughs> issue all over the place. But that's, I mean, that's where you got to look at this. I mean, the sales group was like, yeah, cell phone blockers, block all that so they can't scan it. And, and, and you look at that, but that's the problem is when you, when you hear what we do and you hear protecting the channel and you minimum advertise pricing, I have to create for all my manufacturers pricing parity across the platforms. If these scan it in REI, I need to give them a reason not to either buy it right there or they can go on Amazon but they're not doing it for price. They're doing it, maybe it's a convenience factor, or maybe there's not an extra large and there's an extra large on Amazon, but the prices are the same. That's the only way, you know, a healthy channel is a happy channel, right? Um, and, And if all the authorized sellers across the board are at the same price, that's not unfair competition. That's healthy competition. Yeah. So what are you doing? Your REI is going to make it seamless that so you can come in there, try it on, bring it back the next day, um, you know, buy it online. REI will do customer service things to create that loyalty to the menu, to the to the REI store and to the brand. That's the reason you would go there. That's the reason I go to REI, where Amazon is definitely more of a convenient factor saying, okay, well, I was able to get this size of hydro and I'm a big hydro flask guy. Right. So I have them everywhere, <laughs> but um, you know, you're just gonna, you want to, you want everybody to be able to play equally. And if you're creating unfair competition and if you're allowing unauthorized people who aren't part of your channel, who does not know your pricing advertised, not no benefits of nothing. If they're allowed to do whatever they want, the system's going to fail. Amazon's not going to fail. They'll benefit from that, but the overall system will fail. So it's not just protecting the brand from the integrity, which is important. Hydroflask has got a great reputation. They were the leader. They were the first one. You want to protect that that so from brand erosion, right? Brand integrity. But you also want to know that everybody who's selling Hydroflasks, they have a channel and they all want to sell it because they're all creating equal and they all have the same 
opportunity to convert for that consumer. If you have that whole ecosystem, everybody's happy. And you, unfortunately, I, 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 well, it's two sides. I wish I didn't have a job because of that, but then I do glad I have a job. So, <laughs> so let's, let's be very careful, very careful how I say that, but it is very important that if you're going to sell online, if you have a product, whether you're starting from the very first sketching this out to registering a trademark, or you have manufacturing in four other countries in the world, you need to have someone like us. You need to have it in-house. Um, you could go to a law firm. There's, there's other people in the industry that do this. Um, I encourage that you at least talk to somebody to make sure that you're, you're protected. And that's the consumer as well. Um, we work with a lot of consumers knowing I need to buy this in bulk. I was going to go to Amazon or Alibaba or wish.com. I'm like, okay, well, let's just stop there. Let's not do wish or Alibaba, but let's take a look at what you're doing. Make sure we're buying it from authorized. So you get the benefits of the manufacturer and let's make sure you're getting legitimate product. Right. So we can help from all that whole ecosystem. That is so I have a question for you. Stuff. This may be a strange pivot and bear with me if it is, but again, there's, man, there's so many angles to this. So oh, yeah. let, let's say that I decide that I want to create a, a, a widget or a product or whatever it is, and I do everything legit, but it turns out that one component of my, that makes my product, it can be fairly minor, you know, let's say it's a chip or whatever it is, is completely counterfeited or not legit how would that affect my product well the federal government will say um any piece that's been changed and that makes the whole thing counterfeit i would say from a brand protection standpoint for my manufacturers um heck yeah i'd call that counterfeit so i can enforce them <laughs> <laughs> so it makes my job easier but in reality that's not the case so again going back to that federal trial i actually was speaking on on cell phones right um I do not believe that that chip then would make the whole thing counterfeit because if that's the case, every time you break one of these screens and you go to an iFixit and they replace that screen, does that mean I'm now in possession of counterfeit and can be held accountable for that? I don't believe that to be so. So I think that there's certain there's certain levels, um, you know, and and is it counterfeit? Is it not counterfeit? Is it Samsung chips secondary market? It, you know, what, what is that? So I would always go back to good faith and bad faith, Gary. If you knowingly are doing this and you just want to cheap, that's kind of bad faith. And you're going to roll the dice there and see how it lands. Um, if it's good faith and you're just like, I just need these manufacturers and you find out later um, that, that this is happening in there, we'll call them, readjust it, uh, maybe you know, see if you can get it done differently or tell them to do it differently. But it all comes back to what the intent is. Um, remember, conspiracy to commit fraud <laughs> carries more <laughs> punishment than actually committing of the fraud. So just remember that. <laughs> well, and even with that, I mean, I could be pretty darn convincing that my intent was good. Yeah, you know I mean, that's, man, yeah. it's just crazy to it's me. It's a gray area, right? I mean, it's like, it, it's ironic the way you look at this and you always want to make sure you're protected. But if all three of us right now were planning to rob a bank and get caught, that carries more punishment than if, if one of us just ran to the bank and robbed it, right? Because <laughs> it's all the intent. It's all conspiracy to commit fraud against a consumer. And if you're not doing that, um, then I'd say you're okay. And I would, I, would, I would just say that probably almost everything, unless you've got your manufacturing nailed down in China, everything coming out of China probably has got to level that. I would even bet these do. The lid could be made in a different one somewhere and they could acquire it. The little straw in here, the rubber cushion on the bottom. I mean, to, to say that Hydroflask nailed all of that, 
I, it, it, it would be really hard for them to do that because they're not every facility and they're not there when it's packaging or going over. So yeah. could all these rubber plates actually go from a secondary market that the buyer got cheaper and didn't know and they weren't paying the intellectual property rights? Very much could be. Is Hydroflask then now com committing that or is it just the manufacturing or the boxing? I mean, that's the question. And that's I mean, Hydroflask. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> no, and it goes it goes on and on and on. I'm just looking at time here. We're 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 at that hour, but uh, I can already see Gary has this. I want more. I want more. I want more. Yeah, I definitely definitely. So, I think this is absolutely intriguing. I, I think yes. most people don't understand. No, how, how deep it goes, man. Yeah, yeah. We need we need to have a we need to have a follow up sometime. And I'd also like to hear your story more. Yeah. Uh, just in just it's just intriguing to you know the your military background you know, what you did in college and how all that kind of culminated into where you, what you're doing right now. Um, I'm sure you, when you were a, a teenager bopping around on a Saturday night, you didn't say, man, I'm going to go into brand protection. This is my thing. <laughs> <laughs> I would have beat myself up going, you geek. <laughs> so I, I always think it's interesting to see how people kind of end up where they end up and what they're doing. And, you know, it's obvious that you have a passion about what you're doing and you guys love what you're doing. I will tell you just the mere fact that you were able to pin down Maurice and have him do something that he loves and enjoys is no easy task. So you're doing something right, man. Um, I can tell you right now that uh, I have been very blessed having Maurice in my life. He, um, I, I was able to build this company, but I probably couldn't have done the things I did because it's not it. Marie having Maurice around is not just that he's, you know, a hard worker or he builds rapport. He's almost that that spiritual balance, right? And it's and it and it and it's a little bit of everything. And um, I could tell you right now that every client I talk to is like, we love Maurice. <laughs> <laughs> going, what am I chopped liver? Right? I mean, you know, it's like, okay, that's fine. And I I'm blessed in the fact that last year um, on this federal trial, which consumed a majority of my time, I virtually handled handed the entire company to Maurice. For almost four months there, I was consumed, like working every night, every weekend. And I came back and I was almost like, do I need to be back? <laughs> I mean, I'm sure he was overworked, but um, yeah. So, you know, he's, he's definitely, uh, he's, he's, he's a unique one. So I, I'm the one that's blessed to have him around here. It's so. been a blast, well, man. <laughs> well, that's something that I just want you to know. That is something that we shared. Maurice has been a vital component in my life throughout the years, just for what you said. And sometimes it's, it's the, uh, the, uh, things you can't even put a finger on. It's kind of yeah. that spiritual, you know, kind of underlying and just anyway, we could share some stories. I oh, can no. tell you, right. It's going to be bad, man. <laughs> We'll do that anyway, when well, it's thanks, just thanks you and I. Yeah, <laughs> that? that would be fun. Just a you. <laughs> yeah, we could just tell Marie stories and let him watch that later. <laughs> oh, there you go. There you go. Thank hey, Maurice that. was really mad at me once he showed me his commercial with the sumo wrestler. <laughs> I did that with every client. I had to. <laughs> I don't don't give me that material. I'll come up with material on my own, but you gave that to me. Is, I shared that with everybody. So there's a CEO of a company. <laughs> That actually took that video. So any of you that don't know, I played a sumo wrestler in a commercial for weight loss. <laughs> He's the actor. He's the actor. Yeah. And the, I was the after guy. And I was the reward guy. And the CEO of a company that Dave shared this with goes, he puts, because I'm pushing the big man down. And then he goes, 
This is what happens to brands that don't adhere to our math policy. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Oh, that's, oh, that's awesome. awesome. We that's could go awesome. on and on and on, but let's do this again, man. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Thanks for your time. Thanks, gentlemen. Take care.